Hello, and welcome to New Books in Philosophy, the podcast channel in the New Books Network where philosophers discuss their new ideas as expressed in their newly published books. I'm Carrie Figdor, and I'm co-host of the channel along with Robert Talese. In introductory survey courses in the history of philosophy, the figures that get emphasized are largely stable from course to course. Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, Descartes, Locke, and Hume, Kant, and a few others. After that, specialization sets in, and one or another of the periods or philosophers gets covered in more depth. One specialization that has never gotten as much attention as the others is medieval philosophy, which can be defined broadly as Christianity-inflected thought from roughly St. Augustine in the late 4th and early 5th centuries up to the beginning of modern philosophy in the early 17th century, when Descartes comes on the scene. That's about 1,300 years. In other words, the medieval period is about as long as the rest of philosophical time combined, and longer if we don't go back as far as Thales. Moreover, even within medieval philosophy, there are long periods that are, to a large extent, virgin territory. Our guest today on New Books in Philosophy has done a great deal to change that. Professor Robert Pasnow is a medieval specialist at the University of Colorado at Boulder, and his new book is titled Metaphysical Themes, 1274 to 1671, just out from Oxford University Press. In this monumental work, eight years in the writing, and no doubt more in the thinking, Professor Pasnow focuses on a 400-year period that as a whole is characterized by a rigid orthodoxy enforced, most notably, by the Inquisition. Certain ideas, that is, were punishable by death. But Professor Pasnow's purpose is not to be an apologist. Even he admits that this period includes a trough of two particularly stultifying centuries, sandwiched between two that were a bit more lively. The medieval period, after all, is what gave us the still unsolved problem of how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. Instead, he traces the development of the scholastic metaphysics of substance, in which ordinary objects such as dogs and cats and stones are conceptualized as composites of matter and form. What was this metaphysics in its main permutations? And why did it come crashing down so quickly and completely as it did towards the end of the 17th century? Why was it replaced by the corpuscularianism of the modern era? Why didn't philosophy itself simply fall apart at that point? Let's get Robert Posno on the line to find out. I have with me here today Professor Robert Posno from the University of Colorado at Boulder. Uh, Professor Posno? Yeah, hi. Hi. Uh, thanks for joining us at New Books and Philosophy. Yeah, my pleasure. Um, and as I mentioned in my intro, we we're discussing his new book, uh, Metaphysical Themes, um, 1274 to 1671 from Oxford University Press. Um, so to start us off, maybe, uh, Bob, you can tell us a little bit about your background as a philosopher and your interest in pursuing uh, this uh, extensive book project? Yeah, well, I've, I've always been interested in the history of philosophy ever since I started as an undergraduate. And in fact, my first class ever in philosophy was a class in medieval philosophy at the University of Colorado with uh, 
a professor by the name of, of James Ross. And um, I've just stayed fascinated with the stuff ever since then. I went to graduate school at Cornell University, studied with Norman Kretzmann there, who was a leading scholar in medieval. Uh, my, my earliest research centered around Thomas Aquinas, and um, my, my book before this one was on Aquinas' theory of human nature. But I, the more I studied Aquinas and the more I learned about what came before him and after him, the more I felt as if our picture of medieval philosophy is, uh, is too much focused on Aquinas in a lot of ways. That, that Aquinas is really uh, one of the starting points of the scholastic era, but a lot of what's interesting about later medieval philosophy happens after Aquinas. And so uh, this book is an attempt to, to kind of carry my research farther into, into the later scholasticism, what happens after Aquinas and the shape of metaphysics uh, uh, through later scholasticism and into the modern era. So could you explain uh, what the significance of the years 1274 and, and 1671 are as the, the sort of bookends of your of your Yeah, book? so maybe I should say first that I, I picked this title, obviously after a lot of thought, Metaphysical Themes, 1274 to 1671. I, I picked it because I didn't want... Want to, to label the book as, as anything like the origins of modern metaphysics or the end of medieval metaphysics. I wanted to stay away from the titles medieval and modern and, and renaissance and, and all of that stuff because I, I think in a way that begs the very questions I'm trying to get at in the book. I'm trying to, to think about what counts as, as modern, what counts as medieval, where the boundaries lie. Uh, and, and so to impose labels on the very title of the thing would, uh, would, would, uh, would stand in the way of that. And indeed, throughout the book, uh, I managed to write the book without using the terminology of medieval and early modern. I, um, I do speak of, of scholasticism as, as a pretty well-defined movement that begins in the 13th century and goes for centuries beyond that into the 17th century and beyond the, the very technical Aristotelian philosophy of the universities in Europe. So that's a pretty well-defined term, but I don't. I stick. I stay away from, from from terminology of medieval and modern, and so I needed some other label to to talk about what my subject matter was, and so I decided to just do it in terms of years. And 1274 is the year of Thomas Aquinas's death, and so that demarcates one of the uh, the the boundaries of, of the project. I talk some about Aquinas, but I'm, I'm really interested in metaphysics as it took off after Aquinas and as it developed in later scholasticism. And 1274 is also right around the time when several very important uh, later medieval figures got started in terms of, in terms of their writing. Uh, Peter John O'Levy and Henry of Ghent, they both come onto the scene right around 1274, and they're uh, a couple of the most important early figures in the book. Uh, then 1671, um, that's, that is in some ways an artificial date, and I think even scholars in 17th century philosophy, well, I know that they're sometimes puzzled by that date, but it's the date that uh, John Locke composed his first uh, drafts of his essay concerning human understanding. He, his so-called A draft and B draft were both written in 1671. It wouldn't be until 1689 that Locke finally published the essay, but uh, and, and, and there's a lot in the published essay that's not in those initial drafts, a great deal. 
But the initial drafts, if you read the initial drafts, you can see that the, the basic outlines of the essay Locke had at that point. He, he knew what he wanted to do, and a lot of the important ideas are in the, uh, in the are, 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 he's got them down at, at that point by 1671. And that's important to me because what you get in the 1670s is you get figures like Spinoza and Leibniz coming on the scene and Malebranche that are really, as I think of them, they're, they're a kind of a second generation of, uh, of, of 17th century thought. There's, there's the first generation of thought of, of people like Galileo uh, and, and Descartes, and then you get this second generation of, of Spinoza and Leibniz that is just it's beyond the, the scope of what I was able to deal with in the book. But I did want to talk about Locke, and I think in a lot of ways Locke is, is more like a first-generation figure than a second-generation figure. Uh, it's just that he lived so long, and, and the essay was published so late in his life, that he looks like a, a later figure. So by going up to 1671, I'm able to get various important figures like Hobbes, uh, like Newton, like Boyle, but uh, I'm able to exclude figures like Spinoza and Leibniz that I think of as a second wave of, of philosophy in the 17th century that are, that are in principle quite important to what I want to do, but are just farther than I was able to go. But I do think in a lot of ways Locke is, is a figure that belongs to the first wave as I think of it. Uh, and then after Locke you get the, the later figures in, in, in British empiricism that are also out, outside the scope of my book. So I go, the, the end points of the book, in the continental tradition I go up to Descartes, and then in the British tradition, I go up to Locke, uh, and, and I stop with Descartes and I stop with Locke. And, and although in some ways the chronology of that is a bit, is, is a bit odd, I, I think really in terms of the content of the material, it makes a good deal of sense. Okay, so speaking to, to get started on the content, um, I guess it's, it's a one way to characterize um, what motivated these scholastic philosophers um, was the question of, you know, is there an enduring substratum of change? Um, yeah. And and if there is, what is it? And and you know, trying to answer these questions um, led to the theories of of prime matter and of form and of substance. You know, their combination. Um, so could you? perhaps go into um, some deep detail of how you treat um, those different concepts. Yeah, uh, that's, um, that's a good place to start because that is an issue on which there was a great deal of consensus throughout the four centuries that I'm looking at, that there, that there was some kind of enduring atom uh, of change. So people considered the possibility that there was not, that, um, th that reality is just one instantaneously existing thing followed by another, followed by another, the, a kind of view that today uh, there's a lot of interest in. That was, it was considered, but um, it, it, so far as I know, it wasn't accepted by anyone across the board. Uh, all parties to this debate, um, scholastic authors or their critics, agreed that, uh, th that there are things that endure through change. Now, um, the things that endure through change that we're most familiar with are what, are what we call substances and what they called substances. And so to ask about things that endure through change is in one way to ask about their theory of substance. But they also thought, in addition to sort of familiar substances that, that, that we uh, encounter 
you know, in, in ordinary life and, and, and talk about in, in ordinary language. In addition to that, uh, there's also what the scholastics called prime matter, uh, where prime matter is defined as, as what we might call the substratum of change. And that's the, that's the metaphysical theory of that part of reality that endures through all change. Uh, so even in cases where you have one substance and it goes out of existence, it dies, say, and then something else comes into existence, a corpse, say, even in, in a case like that, what the scholastics called substantial change, scholastic authors thought that, that enduring through that sort of change, there's something, what they called prime matter, that survives all such changes. And, and they thought, you never get a case of something completely ceasing to exist from top to bottom, such that, so that it goes out of existence and, and every aspect of it goes out of existence. They thought, that's naturally impossible. That, uh, that, that in terms of nat what's naturally possible, in terms of natural processes, there's always some kind of substratum there. And, and, and their term for that was prime matter. Uh, you might suppose that Descartes and others absolutely rejected um, this talk of prime matter, and in a certain sense they did. But in another sense, they, um, they embraced uh, something like prime matter because they accepted the idea that all change has some kind of substratum. Uh, they accepted that there's some kind of matter that endures through all change. And they said, well, you can call it prime matter if you want. Uh, but they had a very different conception of prime matter from, from the conception of the scholastic authors. They, uh, and and so, so the debate was, in a way, not whether there's prime matter. The debate was, yes, there must be some enduring substratum of change. What is this stuff? What is this matter that we should postulate? Well, we, we have an idea like that today, right? I mean, that you know, matter is neither created nor destroyed. Um, yeah, yeah, right. Um, we yeah, and so so various theories of uh, conservation theories uh, in physics. Um, I mean, one can one can tell a pretty good history of the development of physics in terms of uh, the different kinds of conservation theories that were regarded as fundamental. Uh, and so t today, uh, the conservation of energy uh, is considered a fundamental principle. Uh, that's of course uh, a, a concept that's that's alien to uh, to, the, to the folk I'm interested in. Um, people in the 17th century embraced one or another theory of conservation, whether it was uh, the the conservation of of matter, which is how the scholastic authors would have put it, uh, or the conservation of quantity, which is something that that Descartes insisted on, which is to say that. Um, there, there's only so much res extensa in the universe, only so much extended stuff, and the quantity of that, Descartes thought, is preserved uh, through all change. Uh, Newton comes along, and Newton insists on the conservation of mass. Uh, and so th there, there's, in, there's interestingly different views about what gets conserved through, through change, beginning in the 17th century and, and to our own day. Uh, what's distinctive about scholastic views is they have a very metaphysical uh, understanding of, of, of what's at issue. They think that there's some stuff uh, of some sort, some stuff that's in a mysterious way without quality, that's, that, that can't be uh, characterized in terms of any of the sensible features that we can detect through the senses. That, that, that stuff, it's, 
it's essential as a metaphysical postulate, but it's, it's a kind of a bare theoretical postulate that, that we need to invoke, but that we, we really can't say anything about. It's, it's, it's sort of the original unobservable entity. And then to the, to the prime matter um, is somehow added uh, form, and you, you characterize the theory of form um, as opposed to, say, Plato's theory of forms. Um, the idea of form is the first big idea in philosophy. Right, yeah, big idea with a capital B and right. capital I. Um, so, my, I mean, I, I, think of, I think of the history of philosophy as very much continuous. Um, I, I think that um, one sees the same ideas appearing over and over again, um, transmuted in various ways, um, the, the same disagreements. Um, I, I think um, people uh, are, are motivated by the same kinds of worries. I, I, I see a great deal of continuity so, so that one can really speak of, of, of perennial ideas that, that run through the history of philosophy. But, of course, that's not to say that there's never anything new in the history of philosophy. I think, obviously, there are new things, and I, and I think... But but I think there are there are not as many of them as one might suppose. That when one starts to look closely at the history of philosophy, one does just see oh you know the same issues again and again and again arise, and people package things in different ways, and 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 opinion lines up in different ways, and certain views go in and out of fashion. But it it really is um, much the same territory being gone over and over again. However, there are new ideas, and so um, it's interesting to ask, well, what are the, the, the big ideas that, um, that pop up over the centuries? When do they pop up, and, and how do they transform philosophy? And so I say, well, the first really big idea is the idea of form. Uh, and, and so one gets it in Plato, form with a capital F, and then one gets it in Aristotle, form with a lowercase f, forms as imminent within substances, and uh, from that starting point, forms really dominate philosophy all the way up until the 17th century, whether we're talking about Neoplatonists or whether we're talking about Aristotelians, uh, forms are, are at the center of their philosophical thinking. It's the, it's, it's the fundamental concept of pre-modern philosophy. Uh, and then in the 17th century, you know, forms are treated with a great deal of suspicion, um, so it, it you, you know the, the theory comes comes under attack in a certain way, but I, but I think it's worth it, it makes sense in a way to think of that as the first big idea. So could you say something about um, the the different theories of forms um, by the scholastics in this period and and how it um, how those different views uh, feed into their different views of substance? Yeah, I mean that's. There's a beginner's answer to that question, and then there's the expert's answer to that question. And I don't myself feel like I have a grip on the expert answer because it's a very, it's a very tricky question to to say what exactly a form is, uh, and and maybe in part it's tricky because I think there was no agreement among scholastic authors about how to answer that question in any in any detail. There was. Uh, you, you know, no more than there'd be agreement today on what a property is. Um, it was just, it, it was a very contentious question that was one of the fundamental issues up for grab 
up for grabs among scholastic authors. Um, but I said there's a, there's a beginner's answer, so maybe I should briefly say, say something about that. The fundamental distinction in this territory that uh, pretty much everyone accepts is that there are substantial forms and there are accidental forms. And so the substantial form is, is, is roughly speaking, the essence of a thing. It's what makes a substance be the substance it is. So my substantial form is my soul. Uh, the substantial forms of other living things are their souls. Um, but there are substances that are not living things. Uh, you know, gold, for instance, is a substance, and so we can talk about the substantial form of gold. Uh, and then to say what a substantial form is, we're getting into you know the more expert sort of territory. But contrasted with substantial forms is accident are accidental forms. Uh, these are features of substances that do not define them as what they are. So they're not they're not part of the essence. They're not uh, they're not uh, they're not defining in that way. Um, and and um, the, the official characterization of an accidental form is it's something that can come and go while the substance remains. Uh, and the, the, the classic examples of, of accidental forms are, are sensible qualities. Um, so colors and shapes and sizes and, and the other sensible qualities of things. Those are all uh, typically regarded as accidental forms. And those, in some sense, inhere in substances, so that the substance itself is the composite of the substantial form and the prime matter, uh, and then the accidental forms inhere in that um, form matter composite, and, and then all of that together gets you what I call the fixed substance, the whole the whole package with the sensible qualities included. Uh, so that's kind of a textbook answer to to the question: what what do, what do scholastic authors mean by forms? It's a very jargony kind of answer that that uh, just takes for granted notions like sensible quality and inherence and uh, composites of form and matter. But to go beyond that, it's really a very very difficult question. That I, you know, looking around at what other scholars have tried to do talking about m medieval views, uh, it's hard to find anyone that's really gone very far in coming to grips with, with exactly what a form is supposed to be. Well, one of the things, uh, as I recall, you, you write was there was a debate about the doctrine of transubstantiation yes. in the church and how this affected positions on the theory of forms. Yeah, um, that's because the, I mean, the sort of skip over some of the messy theological details of transubstantiation. The, uh, the, the upshot of the theory was that there needs to be some way to make sense of, of accidental forms, in particular sensible qualities, existing without uh, any subject to inhere in. And uh, that looks very bad from an Aristotelian point of view on its face because because you know the story as I was just explaining it is the accidental forms in here in the substantial form prime matter composite well what do you do when the substantial form prime matter composite isn't on, on the scene anymore and you've just got these three floating accidents uh, it doesn't seem to fit with the theory very well and yet um, the doctrine of, of the Eucharist as it was understood um, during this time, and, and this time is, is really 
all four centuries that I'm talking about until you get uh, to the rise of, of Protestantism, and then you and then you have some more ver- variation in how people think about this stuff. Uh, but for most of the authors I talk about, for most of this period, they're committed to this conception of, of the Eucharist in terms of transubstantiation. So they're committed to these free-floating accidents. And that led them to think about accidents in, in a highly um, realistic, non-reductive way. You, the door was closed to thinking of accidents as just ways of being or modes of being. You had to think of them as as full-blooded entities in their own right. And, and indeed, oftentimes the worry was that these accidental forms start to look like they're little mini-substances in their own right, which is, which is a disaster for the theory because you've got to the theory requires distinguishing between substances and accidental forms, but it, it became rather tricky to explain why accidental forms are not themselves substances of a certain kind. So is there a, is there a theory of forms uh, in this period uh, that you think was more successful than, than the others? Well, I think... That's a, that's a hard question to answer. I think... It kind of depends on. I, I don't have a favorite, it, and so um, to answer your question, I think it kind of depends on one's proclivities. I think an interesting, an interesting thing that I took myself to learn is that in in the very start of the period I focus on, um, uh, Aquinas's time, and shortly thereafter, one finds a conception of accidents that's really not so different from what Descartes would later say about modes. One finds a conception of accidents on which um, they really are just modes of being. They're just ways in which substances are. And um, one kind of claim that you, that you see made in, in Aquinas and in, in, in his followers and in others is that um, accidents exist in a different way from the way substances exist. Uh, now, this can look like a very, very mysterious doctrine, um, and, and, and on its face, not a very attractive one, because it's natural to think, well, existence just, there's, there's only one kind of existence. Things either exist and they don't exist, and, you know, what do you mean, different ways of existence? But I find it quite interesting to think about how, um, for someone like Aquinas, you could, you could insist on there being different ways in which things exist, different meanings of what it is to exist. And you could you could try to make sense of what it is to be a form, an accidental form, uh, in terms of playing around with um, with the notion of existence. Um, and it's interesting then to, to to flash forward to Descartes and look at Descartes' modes and ask yourself, well, what is Descartes up to with his theory of modes? When because Descartes thinks that what there is in the world, or there are two kinds of substances. Um, uh, thinking substances and extended substances, and then there are the modes uh, of these substances. That's that's what there is in the created world. And well, what does Descartes think modes are? I I came around to the view that Descartes is very much a realist about these modes. He he thinks modes really exist. They're really a further feature of the world uh, beyond substances. But well, how, if they exist, how again? How are they different from substances? That question that plagues the scholastics comes back. Uh, to plague Descartes. Uh, and you might wonder whether in, in Descartes the conception of, of different ways of existing could do some work. 
Um, so, so that's that's not exactly a theory of forms, perhaps, but it's it's a theory about existence that that does work um, in the context of forms and explains why there's this tendency that that one sees to to want forms to be fully real, but yet not to be existent things in the same way that substances are. Uh, so it involves playing around with what we mean by real and playing around with what we mean by existence. Uh, and whether this is a theory that I am ultimately persuaded by, it's, it's at any rate a theory I find quite interesting. So when you start getting to criticisms of substance as a, as a form-matter composite, um, why, why is that not a good answer to the problem of, you know, the original question of, uh, you know, explaining ordinary objects, right, as enduring yeah. things, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, what what one finds in the 17th century is um, a great deal of scorn heaped on the scholastics for their invoking these very austerely metaphysical entities that we have very little empirical basis for buying into. And this applies to their criticisms of prime matter and their criticisms of substantial form. It's, I mean, mean, there's something a bit paradoxical about it because what the scholastics were after is the scholastics were after a defense of common sense ontology in, in, in as much as the scholastics wanted a theory on which what exists in the world is, is very much what we think exists according to common sense. We think that there are dogs and cats and people and stones and you know all of this stuff. And the scholastics are trying to defend the reality of all of that. They're, they're common sense Aristotelians from that perspective. But they think to defend the reality of all this stuff, you need a very, well, should I say, Baroque metaphysics. You need this metaphysics of prime matter, of, of unobservable prime matter, and and substantial forms that you know you know are very sort of mysterious in their in their reality. And you need accidental forms. And so you need you need all of these these metaphysical entities. Uh, and 17th century authors just thought we can't possibly need to postulate all of that stuff to do philosophy. That there's just got to be something wrong about this methodology at which, according to which we take as, as fundamental these entities that, um, you know, we've got, as Descartes would put it, we've got no clear and distinct idea of, or as, as, as Locke would put it, we have no, you know, idea of through, uh, through sensation or reflection. Um, that, that, so for them, they just thought this whole scholastic way of proceeding was bankrupt from the start, and we've, surely there's some other way of doing this. But then, Again, back to what's paradoxical about all of this, these 17th century authors, although they seem very commonsensical and intuitive at the level of the metaphysical ingredients, when it comes to putting those ingredients together, they end up being the ones who are very out of sync with common sense, and, and, and they arrive at all these, you know, sort of strange and, and puzzling views about things. Um, so, so, so in Descartes, you know, you arrive at this very sort of extreme-looking form of dualism, on which it's it's not even clear, you know, whether I am the soul or whether I am somehow my soul and my body. And there are questions in Descartes about how many material substances there are in Descartes. 
And then when you get to figures like Spinoza and Leibniz, these things famously become hugely problematic, and it just looks like there's no way at all to, to get back to any sort of commonsensical metaphysics. Well, if, um, if everybody ends up, you know, in a sense, all or nearly all philosophers want to, you know, preserve common sense or save the appearances in some way. I mean, even, even Barclay, um, you know, wants, wants it to be the case that whatever theory they give, it somehow captures common sense. And yet, they all end up with views that are metaphysical or just more broadly don't seem to be commonsensical at all. And so if that's the case, um, how strong are the criticisms of the scholastics for defending you know, and elaborating a framework um, that maybe in certain of its aspects doesn't cohere with common sense? I yeah, mean, yeah. Um, r- right, and so I think, I think when, you, when you think about the terrain in this way, you, you think, well, there's, there's trade-offs here, and um, the, the scholastics, for all their much-ridiculed uh, eccentric ontology, are, are getting this result that's appealing, um, then, then you start to think, well, all right. So, how do we kind of, how do, how do we kind of do the math here? How do we, how do we think about these, uh, the, the, the different costs of these different theories? And, and I think this is an issue, issue that's very much alive in metaphysics today, because, because of course today, in a way, all of, all of these issues are, are recapitulated. So you get people defending a neo-Aristotelian metaphysics, uh, who, um, are out to, 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 to tell a theory about the world that very much jibes with, um, with our ordinary conceptions of it. Uh, and um, you, get, you get other people that are defending, you know, very strange-sounding uh, ontologies today, but, but can do so in an almost cost-free way in terms of, um, of, of their ontological commitments at the ground level. Uh, and so they can say, look, I, you know, this, this theory, it's so beautifully simple and so forth. Well, it, it, it leads you to a very bizarre conception of the world, but in terms of, of its fundamental postulates, uh, it, it's beautifully minimalistic. Uh, and, and I think just like today, it, there's a question of how you're even supposed to weigh these competing kinds of theories. Uh, that's very much the question that, to ask about the period in, in which I'm interested in. And, and, and there simply are... Uh, Choices that one needs to make about about where one thinks uh, you know it's most important to put the weight. Well, this this period, um, as you note in the book, uh, coincides with the Inquisition. Um, and one of the things that you seem to suggest is that um, the restrictions on thought imposed by the Inquisition. Uh, hurt the scholastics um, in the sense that they were not able to articulate fully the various views um, and thereby profit from criticism. Um, could you elaborate on that suggestion? Yeah, this is an idea that 
when I started working on this book, it would, would never have occurred to me that that it would be important to talk about the Inquisition. Uh, because, you know, like most philosophers, I tend to be focused on the philosophical texts and the philosophical ideas and, uh, uh, you know, think only sort of secondarily about the broader uh, social context. Um, and it's, it's, it's not as if there were other people I could read who had, who had made these connections because the period I'm, I'm working on, that the book works on, um, there's there's been very very little written about about um, the the late medieval period and and um, how it turns into uh, uh, how it gets projected in the 17th century. I mean that that story. There's very few people that have told that story, and so it's it's unclear sort of what what one ought to be looking at when one tries to tell that story. But at a certain point, uh, it occurred to me that. Huh, the issues, the, the, the sort of the, the terrain I'm focusing on, the period I'm focusing on, almost exactly coincides with the rise uh, of the Inquisition uh, in Christian Europe. Uh, and so I started thinking about, well, what are the connections here? Now, from, from a strict historical point of view, one might say there is no direct connection because as, as a strict historical matter, the Inquisition, w w and, and people speak of the Inquisition as shorthand for various Inquisitions that were sort of ran throughout Europe, but the, the Inquisition w didn't have jurisdiction over the university, and so strictly speaking, the Inquisition was not targeted at any European university. But, but the Inquisition is, uh, is, is symptomatic of a, of a broader kind of climate at the time, a climate that was very fearful of innovation and very hostile uh, to anything that looked like it could be a threat to the church. Uh, once one begins in the 16th century to feel the effects of Protestantism, then this becomes, you know, more more and more obviously problematic. But 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 the but the roots of this go all the way back to the 13th century. Uh, and so so the whole of the period in which I'm interested in is one in which there was um, a great deal of nervousness about any kind of innovation. And it's very easy to find people saying in philosophical and theological contexts that, that innovation here, you know, even in these highly theoretical contexts, even within the, the context of a university, innovation here is a direct threat to the church. Uh, and so um, there were a lot of forces out there in the medieval university that were that were very keen to suppress any sign of innovation. And one can see this happening over and over again in the history of metaphysics during this period, where people would say things that, that were interesting and innovative, uh, and they would be condemned for it. Um, th their writings would be confiscated, their writings would be burned, they would be forced to recant their views. Um, and one can find um, any number of, of doctrines that, that we now look at and we think, oh, you know, that's very interesting. You know, I, I wonder what, uh, you know, what people would have thought about that. And, and, and it's just, it's a sad feature of this period that, that we can't know what people would have thought about it because this was an avenue of thought that was shut down almost as soon as it was proposed. So you also single out uh, the year 1347. Um, as one of the great milestones in the history of philosophy. Um, yeah. Could you explain that? Yeah. Uh, there are two um, great condemnations of, of the scholastic era. Um, one in 1277, which is the most famous one, 
and one in 1347. Now, the one in 1277 was, was the largest of, of these condemnations. Uh, and um, it, it's rather a curious thing because it condemned just a, a complete grab bag of, of all sorts of different propositions. And um, it, it had some importance in metaphysics, and I, and I talk about some in the book. But to my mind, it's the condemnations of 1347 uh, that were more important. Um, now, th- these are not as well known, um, the, and there, there are two different ones uh, that are relevant. One of them concerned Nicholas of Otrecourt, and, and 1347 was the year in which uh, the process against him finally ran its course. Otrecourt was a fascinating idiosyncratic philosopher who, uh, who defended all sorts of views that were very much at odds with the usual scholastic Aristotelianism. So he was, for instance, an atomist, um, and he was a critic of the usual conception of substance. He thought that, that the true substances in reality uh, never come into existence or go out of existence. They, they endure it eternally. Um, and, and so, so it was the sort of radical metaphysics that in the 17th century was just commonplace, but in the, in the 14th century was, was extremely you know, unusual and, and fascinating. Unfortunately, in the 1340s, um, his work was, um, was subject to a long um, process of review um, by a papal commission, and it was ultimately condemned. And in 1347, in Paris, he was forced to publicly um, to, to disclaim all of his work uh, and, to, and to publicly burn um, his texts. Uh, and so that was just the end for that, for that avenue. Uh, there was a second um, event uh, in 1347, where the works of John of Miracourt were also condemned. Miracourt's a, a, a very little studied figure, uh, but he too was extremely innovative. And in particular, Miracourt explored the prospects for, for something that looks a lot like the, the corpuscular mechanistic philosophy of the 17th century. Miracourt was, um, was interested in whether we could just uh, do away with accidental forms as something distinct from substances, uh, uh, leaving us with an ontology of of something a lot like just bodies in motion. Um, it's a view similar in some ways to Nicholas of Otrecourt's view. So these two figures, Nicholas of Otrecourt and John of Miracourt, both of their views were condemned in, in 1347. And to, and to my mind, it looks as if here was a, a, a first arising of the kinds of views that one finds flourishing in the 17th century. Way back in the 14th century, there were people defending these views, um, not in any sort of worked out, developed form, but, but, but you can see it there. You can see the ideas there. And, and, and it's, once these views were condemned, I, I mean, these condemnations had a great deal of power, and it simply wasn't possible for people to talk about this stuff anymore. Because they couldn't talk about it, on, on the one hand, of course, no one could develop the views, and so, so, so you don't get the kind of flourishing that you get in the 17th century. But on the other hand, too, there was never the opportunity for the, for the traditional scholastic Aristotelians to defend themselves against this sort of corpuscularian attack. And, and so th- there's kind of a twofold tragedy here, that you don't get the development of the new ideas, and you don't get the kind of full-bodied defense of the traditional ideas that you would have gotten, I think, if, the, if these innovations had been allowed to take their course. 
you know, who knows what would have happened. It, it could be that the traditionalists would have won the day, but I think if they had, it would have made their arguments all, of, all the better and all the more interesting, and, and philosophy from this period would be much more interesting to read about. But the condemnations had the effect of suppressing discourse, and, and it's one of the reasons that this later medieval period hasn't been so much studied. There's a kind of, of a uniformity, not, not you know, complete uniformity, but there's, there's a much narrower range of options that it's possible to defend in the, in the later Middle Ages because of the force of these condemnations. And, and so it wasn't until the 17th century that finally philosophers just broke through and they just set aside these old condemnations and they, and they said what they wanted to say, at least more so than, than they could have previously. And so that's what we think of as the rise of modern philosophy. And, and it happened, I think, in the 17th century because prior to that time, uh, the, the authority of the church was just too strong and it wasn't possible to, to be innovative uh, in the way that, uh, that 17th century authors could. Well, if, if these innovations were, I mean, they do sound uh, like the reductive corpuscularianism that you, that you um, mentioned, you know, came later, right, with mm-hmm, Descartes. Yeah. Um, uh, to what extent then are the corpuscularian philosophers... Um, to what extent is that necessarily critical of the scholastic tradition if people within the scholastic tradition were themselves suggesting very very similar sounding views but presumably considered themselves still to be scholastics? Yeah, well, so this is one of these issues of, of demarcation, which I I want to be careful about and not not jump to any conclusions it's it's precisely for reasons like this that i that i'm keen to just talk about you know the dates 1274 to 1671 and not not get too preoccupied with with labeling something as 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 modern or whether or not it 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 should count as scholastic because there are there are all kinds of borderline cases here where it's really hard to say is this is this an instance of just sort of interesting unorthodox scholasticism, or is this something that, that doesn't count as scholasticism? Is this does this count as a modern um, uh, view? Uh, and so um, these these figures in the 14th century are very much figures like that. They they count as scholastic in as much as they're working within uh, the medieval universe uh, university. They're they're teaching um, at the University of Paris. Um, they're trained in these scholastic traditions, uh, and um, they're, they're writing about Aristotle. Um, but neither one is defending anything like the sorts of views that one sees in Aquinas or Scotus or Occam, and that one thinks of as, as paradigmatically uh, scholastic Aristotelian views. They're, I mean, I would say that neither of these figures are Aristotelians in a certain way. Uh, so, so whether they should be considered scholastic or not, I, I, you know, I, that's not something that I think is that important to decide. And similarly, in the 17th century, you get you get figures uh, that are uh, that are kind of, you know, in between. Um, just one example would be someone like Ken Elma Digby, writing in England, who um, has various views that are very Aristotelian, but then says other things that are not at all Aristotelian, 
And so it's very hard to know how to place him. Even someone like Descartes, you know, people will sometimes describe Descartes as the last scholastic. And there are certainly contexts in which that makes sense. There's aspects of Descartes' view that look very traditional. Uh, but in other respects, Descartes doesn't look at all traditional. It doesn't look at all scholastic. So, um, you know, the reality, of course, just is, is that there's, there's a continuum of views here and, and in different regards, from different perspectives, people are going to look more or less traditional, more or less Aristotelian. So, um, when the substantial, when substances were rejected uh, by the later philosophers in your group, um, you mentioned that this re- the rejection took the form of the corp- corpuscularian uh, theories, but that it didn't have to. Um, that it could have taken various forms, or that in fact it might have been the end of philosophy in a way. Uh, could you elaborate on those comments? Yeah. Um One thing to say, well, let, let me start this way. Let me let me tell you how I define corpuscularianism in the book, because I think it's important, in answering your question, it's important to be clear about uh, what, what I mean when I say that these authors were corpuscularianists and that's the path they went down. Uh, corpuscularianism, historically speaking, is a term that's been used in a lot of different ways, and it doesn't have a precise, universally agreed-upon definition. So I, ju- I simply stipulate that for purposes of my book, uh, by, by a corpuscularian, I mean someone who postulates uh, th- that the only, the only entities there are in this person's ontology are substances. So there, are no, there, there, there aren't going to be any forms then for, for the true corpuscularian, um, and there aren't going to be uh, in, anything like prime matter that's some sort of you know, quasi-substance, substratum-like thing. All there are 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 substances, and those substances are simply bodies, big bodies and small bodies. So the the corpuscles are the little ones, and the the corpuses are the the big ones, um, and and that's all you've got. And and that, more or less, is the path that 17th century authors went down in rejecting uh, scholasticism. Now, I say more or less because obviously, you know, and as is well known, there's an enormous range of views in the 17th century. But the most prominent critics of scholasticism were critics from the sides of corpuscularianism. And so I'm thinking of people like Galileo and Hobbes uh, and Descartes and Boyle and Locke. These figures were all, to some extent or another, corpuscularian-minded figures. Um, Now, there are hard questions about whether they were really pure corpuscularians. I've already said that I think Descartes is is a realist about modes. And so on my terminology, that is to say, Descartes is not a pure corpuscularian. He's got an ontology of of material substances, and he's got uh, an ontology of modes. But still... They're all part of a broad family of views that we can label as corpuscularian. Now then, your question was, well, um, um, what about other sorts of possibilities, other ways in which the view might have been criticized? Um, And um, it's interesting, I think, to think about that question because one thing that could have happened in the 17th century or, or before the 17th century is, is it could have been some much more platonic 
kind of view that won the day. And of course, uh, one, one hears talk about, about Neoplatonism in the, uh, in the so-called early modern period, and, and particularly among Renaissance philosophers, uh, Platonism is often said to be one of the dominant sorts of themes. And indeed, you know, there are people like uh, Ficino for whom Platonism was extremely important. But I think if one, if one sits down with, you know, with, with, with enough texts, there are endless texts, but if one sits down with enough of them and really sort of thinks about what are the, what are sort of the range of views, which views were influential, um, one sees that it's not the Platonistically minded philosophers that really were influential uh, during this time. It was the corpuscularian philosophers that really carried the day. That's, that, that's not totally obvious, I think, because people like Ficino, you know, a lot has been written about figures like that, and you can read books on Renaissance philosophy, and you can come to the view that, oh, you know, Platonism must have been very important. But, but really, looking at the big picture, Platonism, it seems to me, was, was really a minor feature of the view, and it's a, feature, it's a feature of the period that did not really develop very far. Corpuscularianism was the view that really carried the day. And the reason scholastic philosophy collapsed was because it was replaced by, by the this, this school of thought that's more or less corpuscularian. And why, why that view? Boy, I don't know. Um, maybe because that view fit in neatly with the rise of, of modern science. Um, because at the same time that these strictly philosophical debates were going on, there was also developing um, this, this flourishing of, of quantitative, empirical, what we now call science. Um, of course, at the time, as is, as is well known, there wasn't the same kind of demarcation between philosophy and science. And so Newton, you know, was regarded as a natural philosopher. Uh, and so was Galileo. Uh, but, but looking back at it, we can see we can see people like Descartes, who were very much philosophers. Descartes did other things, but 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 you know, there's this body of work in Descartes that's clearly paradigmatically philosophical. And then we can look at people like Galileo, in whom there are bits of philosophy, but really the centerpiece of his work is, is clearly paradigmatically scientific. And then and then onward, and Newton and Newton's followers. And, and we can look back and see the beginnings of a divide between philosophy, philosophy and science. And I think it's, it's a plausible thought that there was no way in which Neoplatonism was going to be uh, developed uh, along the lines of the modern science, but that the corpuscularian agenda looked like something uh, that could be developed in, 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 the, in the quantitative empirical terms of the modern science. And so these, these two sorts of views, uh, corpuscularianism and philosophy and, um, and, and the science of a Galileo and a Newton, um, became fellow travelers. Uh, and, and I think together that, that package of views is what carried the day. I think we have time for perhaps one more question. Um, so to, uh, to continue... the along these same lines. Um, one of the things that you write is that in the period that you look at, these, these 400 years, uh, common, common assumptions were that you know all these philosophers, or nearly all of them, um, they accepted the reality of substances, you know, things such as dogs and cats and stones, um, 
Everyone accept, accepts that there are permanent enduring entities. Um, nearly everyone accepts a distinction between material and immaterial entities. And also that everything that exists is a particular located in a particular time and a place. And what's interesting about those comments about these philosophers of the 400-year period that you talk about um, is that these assumptions could be used to describe the way many people, you know, non-philosophers in particular, um, think today, you know, when they look outside their windows or they look around their room and they see, you know, dogs and cats and all the ordinary objects um, uh, that the scholastics were trying to uh, explain. Um, So are we scholastics today or with it somehow some sort of an overlay of corpuscularianism? (laughs) Yeah. um, I think... You, you know, the, the distinction is sometimes drawn between descriptive and revisionary metaphysics. And um, surely everyone's first impulse in metaphysics is to be, is to be descriptive. Uh, unless, you know, they're just trying to be perverse, I think. The natural inclination is to want to uh, make good on the conceptions of the world uh, that, that, that we have pre-theoretically. I, I think, you know, we clearly do have these these pre-theoretical conceptions of the world of, of just of the ontology of common sense and um, the natural impulse is to try to safeguard that and, and as we talked about that was the scholastic impulse seventeenth um, century authors were tried to be on board with as much of that as they could I mean you mentioned the case of Barclay who has you know pretty crazy views really but Barclay is very you know adamant in insisting that no 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 he's he's the one defending common sense and, and, and our ordinary views of the world um, so that's an impulse that all these authors shared and that uh, comes naturally to us today but I think then and now one of the central questions in metaphysics is is well does it really make sense to to work all that hard to defend our common sense metaphysics. Uh, one can look at the scholastic period and one can say, okay, so here, here is a way to defend uh, common sense metaphysics, but look at the price. Look at all of this stuff that they have to invoke to do this. Uh, look at all of these theoretical entities. Look at all of the metaphysics that they have to do along the way just to explain the reality of a dog. Uh, you know, I mean, you mentioned that that my book's pretty long, and, and and no doubt, you know, there are there are places in it where where a reader will just go numb with all of the scholastic detail because it's really extraordinary how complicated their theories are at certain junctures and trying to explain just the most familiar things. And I think what a lot of metaphysicians then and now find is that. When you try to tell a simpler story about the fundamentals, you then end up thinking that maybe common sense ontology can't be defended, in fact. And, and so then you start revising. You, start, you get into the territory of revisionary metaphysics. And um, this is just one of these places where I think it's hard to know how to, how to sort out the, the pros and cons here, the, the costs and advantages of, of, of different ways of proceeding. 
scholastic authors, I think, partly because of the condemnations we were talking about and, and partly because they were so grounded in Aristotelianism, they uh, weren't very interested in revisionary metaphysics. They were all about coming up with adequate accounts of, of descriptive metaphysics. But, you know, one might think it's a bit like uh, astronomers trying to hold on the t- to the Ptolemaic conception of the solar system as everything's rotating around the Earth. And, yeah, you can do it, but it becomes increasingly difficult and, and contrived, the, 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 uh, uh, the, the machinations you've got to go through to defend the, that traditional theory. And you might think the revisionary metaphysicians, the sort you get in the 17th century, the sort you get today, they're the ones saying, look, we don't, we don't have to tell that story. We can tell a much more simple story. It's going to turn everything inside out. You know, the, the world is not going to be the way it seems to be. Um, but it's a much more simple and more beautiful account, and and isn't that much much more appealing? Uh, so that makes it sound good for the revisionary metaphysicians, but I think in practice it's it's a very very difficult choice. It's hard to know um, which side to take in that old dispute. Well, I think we are out of time, so I just wanted to thank you, Bob, for speaking with us um, about your book. Um, this is I could keep asking questions, but I'm afraid that. Uh, we would just run over. So um, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. This was a lot of fun. Okay. You've been listening to Professor Robert Pasno of the University of Colorado at Boulder talking about his new book, Metaphysical Themes, 1274 to 1671, from Oxford University Press. This is New Books in Philosophy. I'm your host, Carrie Figdor. I hope you enjoyed our podcast, and thank you once again for listening.